So there are what's called the journalistic questions. Jen was a journalist major, so I had to like run these past her just to make sure I was getting them right. But journalist, the journalistic questions, does anybody remember what they are? Whoa, five W's and an H, all right. So who, what, when, why, where, and how, all right. And these are good questions for us. Why are they good questions? Because they help us discover and learn, right? So we get to understand things. So like there was a time when a, a solar eclipse was thought of to be a sign from God, right? And then we start, not then, but so somebody might have asked, well, why is there a solar eclipse? Is, is it really a sign from God or is there something naturally occurring? And so that's the why, right? And then there might have been like a how. Well, if it's not a sign from God and it's a naturally occurring phenomena, how does this happen? And then that got answered, right? And so, so there are really good ways to use who, what, when, why, where, how, and why? No. I messed one up. I, I, stuck, I snuck how in there. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. There's really good times to use that. It, it can help us discover. But sometimes we, and in particular, when it comes to authority, now don't get me wrong, I think these are good questions to use with certain authorities, but there are times when we use these questions with authorities, figures, as an act of rebellion. For example, when I tell my kid to clean his room and he says, oh parents you've heard it, why? What are they doing? They, they don't actually need to know why they need to clean their room. It's a mess. It's disgusting. You can't even find a pair of underwear in there. Why do you need to clean your room? The why is saying why should I? Why should you have that authority over me that I should obey you. So it is a shove back in the face of why. And it's, it's actually usurping authority. Why should I clean my room? You have to justify to me what I have to do. And so what's our response to that? Because I told you so. Because I'm your parent. I'm your authority. I told you go clean your room. I don't need to justify this. You go clean your room. Now, there are times when our kids ask us why, and it's basic curiosity, and it's good for us to give them the why. There are other times when it's just straight-up rebellion, disguised as a question. But we do this with God. We can see the examples uh, when, when the angel came to announce to Mary that she would be pregnant and bear a child. And what does she say? How? And why does she produce this how? Well, there's a few things that have to happen for her to produce a child. And those things haven't happened yet. So she's curious. What on earth is going to go on? How? Please, God, just give me something here because I'm a little bit afraid. But then when you contrast that with Zechariah, and God, the angel comes to him and says, You're gonna, your wife is going to bear a child. And what does he say? How? But it's kind of this bitter how of like, God, I don't actually trust you. I don't actually believe you. How? Explain to me. You deserve to, or I deserve an explanation from you. And Zechariah was a godly man, and we can be godly people and still bring about these questions that actually reveal a little bit of rebellion and bitterness and distrust and disbelief in our life. And we do this in all types of sneaky ways. Teenagers, 
You're starting to date. You're attracted to other people. And yet, there are all these times when we bring up these questions, trying to force God to justify what he has commanded for you. When it comes to your sexuality. And I hear people justify certain sexual preferences based upon the why, the how. And so they twist scripture. And it's really an act of rebellion. But, but there's other times when, you know, you have boundaries set and you're like, I'm going to stick to these boundaries because I know God has called me to stick to some boundaries. And yet you start to bend and twist those boundaries, and you start to ask, well, why shouldn't God created physical intimacy to express love? And I remember being a teenager and having friends tell me this exact argument. God made physical intimacy to express love. I love this girl. This girl is going to be my wife. Why shouldn't I? And instead of trusting God with their with their romantic life, instead of saying, I'm going to follow God, even though I don't quite understand it, they said, God, you justify to me. And what are you really saying when you say, God, justify to me? You're saying, God, I'm actually the one with authority. You're the one that needs to justify what you have laid out. Adults, we do this as well. We do it in all sorts of ways. When Jesus says, pay taxes to Caesar, and tax time comes up, and we know that we can just bend the rules a little bit just to get a, a, you know, a couple more thousand dollars back, and we know it's wrong, and yet we say, why? Instead of trusting God and obeying him. Today we're going to look at an example of a man who trusted in God's authority and obeyed. And we're going to see how that is sweet in our lives. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 10. We're continuing our series on Hopeful, and we titled it Hope-Full because Revelation should be giving us hope. We see the ending. Although we know that there is going to be disappointments in this life, although we know there's going to be tribulation, although we know there's going to be hardships, we know in the end, God wins. And that should give us hope. Revelation is about giving us hope. So we have hope in Christ. We have hope in God. And so that's why we titled it Hopeful. So if you remember, we've got John is writing in the 90s, not the 1990s with bad fashion and gangster rap. It was the actual just literal 90s. Uh, I don't know what kind of fashion or music was popular at that time, so I won't mention it. But uh, he was writing in the 90s. I do know that Domitian was the Caesar. And Domitian was what we call, what I like to call, he was using soft persecution. Instead of hard persecution, persecution that was really ramping up. So if you think of Nero, Nero was killing Christians. He was sacrificing them. He would light his gardens up at night with Christians on fire. That was, that was intense persecution. And what happened was people saw that Christians still had faith. 
people saw that they would die willingly while worshiping their God, and, they, and Christianity continued to spread. Domitian, on the other hand, was what we'd call soft or light persecution, meaning he wasn't out there just killing off Christians, but he was making it financially difficult. He was wearing Christians down slowly. And this is actually, I think, a more difficult persecution for Christians to outlast. We saw in northern, northern Africa, when the Muslims took over, they didn't kill off Christians just to get rid of them. What they did was they put a tax on Christianity. So if you were a Christian, you had to pay more taxes. And this slowly diminished Christians because, well, it's my money. Why should, I, why should I be giving it over to the Muslims? And I can even use it for God's sake. You know, if, if I just hold on to this money a little bit longer instead of giving it to those Muslims, I can actually use it for God. So why don't I just lie and say I'm not a Christian, I'm actually a Muslim, so that way I can hold on to this money so I can use it for God's glory. And slowly, the lie turned into reality. We see soft persecution. We see it happening all over the world. We see intense persecution happening in other countries. And we see the church growing. I think we really need to heed Revelation right now in America. And some people would say, oh, you're not experiencing persecution. And you're right, we're not experiencing intense persecution. But every single Christian will experience some form of persecution, whether it's intense or whether it's light, even in the Bible belts. You know, there was a time where everybody was a Christian, or at least they would say they were a Christian. But if you really believed, if you gave God the big yes, and you were going to follow God and everything he wrote for you, you were one of those stupid Christians. You were like a Jesus freak. No one really wanted that. They wanted the cool Christians. You know, the Christians that would break the rules. So we do experience it. And actually, I think sometimes the soft, the soft persecution, the light persecution, can be the harder one for Christianity to survive in. Because it tempts us to compromise a little. We just compromise a little here and a little bit there, it's okay. And we see that actually starting to extinguish Christianity. So, he was writing under Domitian. He gets called, there's four visions in this uh, book. He gets called up to the first one. He writes le seven letters to seven churches that God has commissioned him to. And then we get caught up in the second vision starting in chapter four. In chapter four, he gets he gets drawn up into the throne room of heaven. We get two chapters that, that show us the, the glory of God in this throne room. And we're also introduced to seven seals. These seven seals, he starts weeping because no one can open them. No one can break the seals and read the scroll. The scroll is all about the end times. How God is going to bring about a new heaven and new earth where his kingdom will reign on earth instead of an earthly kingdom. And then we see that Jesus is worthy and he can break the seals and read and open the scroll. So then we start walking through the seals. And the seals first lift up the restrainer. Meaning that we, it doesn't 
take a whole lot for us to see how depraved humanity can be. But there is something restraining our depravity, our wickedness, right now. When God lifts that restrainer, boy, if you think the world is full of wicked people, you haven't seen anything yet. And so we actually see the first four seals are the lifting of the restrainer and absolute wickedness kills off a hundred, or sorry, a quarter of the world's population. It's, and it's just from our own depravity. So we see these seven seals, and then we get into, on the last seal, there's a trumpet that is blown, and we see the seven trumpets starting to play out. And last week, we got all the way through these seven trumpets, which are, or sorry, we got through six trumpets, which are God's judgments on people. So we see man's depravity being fully revealed, so no one could say, I was good enough, God. God, why don't... Why am I not in heaven? I'm good enough to be there. I deserve to be there. We see that humanity can't use that excuse. And in the the trumpets, we see God's judgment coming. And it's actually an act of mercy because he shows what eternity without him will be. Eternity being tortured by demons. And yet, those who haven't repented still refuse to repent. And God is showing us, look, you deserve separation from God, and this is what separation from God is going to look like. Repent. It's God with a microphone screaming to the world, repent. This is what you're in for. And yet, there is still no repentance. And that brings us to chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand, and sorry, and to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and was in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be, would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. All right, so he starts this off with, then I saw. And this is, uh, once again, an introduction to an interlude. So we saw in chapter 7, there was an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. Here there is another interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. These interludes are drawing us deeper into the vision. So the majority, the, the, all the seals and the trumpets, they're giving us a picture of what's happening with non-believers. The interludes are giving us a picture of the same time period, but, from, but what's happening with believers. So we saw in the seventh seal, or sorry, in the, in the chapter seven, 
the interlude there, we saw what was happening with the great multitude worshiping God. And we saw the 144 sealed. Now we're looking at something else here. So this is an interlude. He's introducing us to the interlude. The interlude is going to continue into chapter 11. So we're going to get into it a little bit more next week as well. But we'll start with the, inter- with the beginning of the interlude here. So then he saw, drawing us in, another mighty angel. Now we're not sure who this angel is. There are some guesses. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we actually know who this angel is. Oh, the only thing we know about this angel is that he's a mighty angel. And then he's going to give us a fourfold description. This fourfold description is going to reveal God's glory that is surrounding this angel. So this angel isn't God, but he has God's glory being surrounded by him. So the angel is wrapped in a cloud. This cloud is a reference to God's Shekinah glory. If you remember all the way back in Exodus, when they uh, were being led in the wilderness, they were being led with a cloud during the day, and in the night, the glow of a burning flame. There's a song, and everywhere I go, let's see, does anybody know that song? No? All right, some people do. I see, I see some no's. If you heard it sung correctly, you'd probably recognize it. Uh, sorry, I am not on the worship team for a reason. But that is the Shekinah glory. So it's a reference to the Shekinah glory. And in this Shekinah glory is, a, is God protecting the believers. So all the way back in Exodus, it was God protecting Israel. Now we see it God protecting the believers during the tribulation. So, there, so this angel is wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And this is to reveal God's mercy. If you remember uh, the rainbow all the way back with Noah, uh, God gave Noah this uh, rainbow as a sign. It is a sign of God's mercy. So we see the rainbow over his head as a sign of God's mercy, and his face was like the sun. This is a reflection of of God's majesty of God's majesty. And if you remember all the way back to Exodus again, when they're at Mount Sinai and, and Moses comes down, and what do, the, what do the Israelites say? They say, cover your face because your face is glowing and it's terrifying us. Uh, that sounds like something my kids would say. Cover your face. Your face is terrifying, Dad. <laughs> so that is, a, is reflecting God's majesty. And then the fourth part of the description is his legs like pillars of fire. And this is actually a reference to the Shekinah glory as well. So we see this description as book ends with God's Shekinah glory. And God's Shekinah glory is all about deliverance. He is going to deliver these people that are, that are believers in the tribulation. So there is the Shekinah glory, it's deliverance, and it's also judgment. Judgment because it's fire, and fire is associated with judgment. So he's going to deliver the believers, and the non-believers will be judged. So this angel comes down, he reflects God's glory, and he had a little scroll open in his hand. Now this little scroll is part of the bigger scroll found in chapter 5. If you remember chapter 5, God has a scroll in his right hand, no one can open it, John weeps, then he's told, don't weep for the lamb can open it. So we see that Jesus can open it. Jesus takes the scroll and he opens the scroll. That scroll reveals all of what theologians call the eschaton or the end times. This little scroll reveals just a little bit of the bigger scroll. 
right? So this is the little scroll revealing what's going to happen with believers. That is part of the bigger scroll, which reveals the whole end times. So there's the little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This it represents both uh, the universality of the message, meaning it is for everyone. It's not that he's just speaking to one people group. This is a message that should be shared everywhere with everyone, but it also represents his authority. So this angel is given authority by God to cover the earth. There is no part of earth that God's authority does not reach. God's authority is on all of the earth for all situations. Every part of your life should be, some, should be submitted to God's authority. There's no part of your life that you can conceal from God. There's no part of your life where you can work on outside of God's authority. Every aspect, every part should be submitted to God's authority. It's so easy for us to forget that. It's so easy for us to think, man, this is one section of my life that, that I can just leave God out of. And that's wrong. God's authority applies to all aspects of your life, everywhere, at all times. So he sets one, his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion. The lion was the most feared creature in Rome, and it was awesome in power. And so he calls out like a lion, and this would be a fearful voice that is calling out that would be thought of as awesome in power. Have you ever heard a lion roar? I remember I was at the Denver Zoo when I was 18 years old, and I had never heard a lion roar. And we were actually walking to get in. We weren't even in the zoo yet, but you know we were walking past like where they keep the lions, and I didn't exactly hear the lion roar. I felt it roar. Because when a lion roars, you don't necessarily hear it, you feel it. It shakes the ground. It shakes your body. It was terrifying, I will be honest with you. So that's the, that's what the picture that he's drawing here. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So this angel calls out, and in response to this call, this terrifying call, there are seven thunders. Now, we've talked quite a bit about how the, the number seven is the number for completion. So we know that these seven thunders, uh, there is a completion within this. However, uh, we're not entirely sure what it is. So thunder in, throughout this book represents God's awesomeness, it represents God's judgment, and it represents God's deliverance. We're not entirely sure if it's all or just one specific aspect of this, but we don't know. And why don't we know? Because, uh, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it. <laughs> so we don't actually know what the seven thunders are doing. And there's a lot of guesses. I know uh, J. Vernon McGee, he's a, a pretty famous theologian. He thinks that uh, the, the seven thunders represents God's agreement with the judgments. I don't know if that's true. And I'll tell you why I don't know. Because it doesn't say. 
So there's a lot of different speculation on what these seven thunders mean. I think we uh, don't know, and we can actually run into trouble if we guess. When we start guessing what these seven thunders represent, what these seven thunders mean, what the seven thunders are saying, I think we can actually get in trouble because we don't know. And actually, we begin to lose the point. So often throughout this book, we start to look at the symbolism and we get lost in the symbolism, so much so that we lose the point. And what is the whole point? Why did he even write this down? If we are not to know what the seven thunders say, why does he write down the seven thunders? Why not just omit that? Sure would be easier, wouldn't it? It's to show us God's authority. Even here, God has an authority. We see that God is sovereign, and we don't need to know it all. We don't need to know every single last detail of how this world will end. What we do know is what God has revealed. And there will be things that God does not reveal. And in your life, there will be times when you, ha- when you will ask the question, why? And you won't get an answer. And your job isn't to continue digging for the answer. But to trust God in the lack of an answer. Can you do that? That's difficult sometimes. Why, God, did my life turn out this way? Sometimes you don't have an answer for it. Why, God, did this person who was healthy die? We don't always get an answer. Why, God, did this person I love so much abuse me? don't always get an answer. You are not the authority of this world. And you don't always deserve an answer. But can you trust God in silence? Just last week, we uh, looked at how God uses discipline to instruct us. And we went through the example of uh, our kid running to a street. You know, we discipline our kids so that they obey us, so that when we need them to obey in in immediate obedience, they will. And the great example was running to the street. If we have taught our kids to obey, and we see them running into into a busy street, and we yell, stop, they stop. They don't ask, well, why should I stop as they continue running? That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? How should I stop, Dad? You you told me to stop, Dad, but I'm not entirely sure how I should stop. Can you explain to me first how to stop? Who should stop again? Maybe that person over there should stop, but I don't need to stop. So often in our lives, we know that we can trust God, and yet when we see 
or I should say when we hear silence from God, we begin to ask these questions. And instead of obedience, we continue in disobedience, just justifying it with all of these questions. And yet we see here that even in silence, God can be trusted, and that's the point. We don't know everything. We can trust God in it all. And sometimes we just need to be obedient without knowing the who, the what, the why, the where, the how. So that's the point of it, is that we see that God is still sovereign, God is still authoritative, and we don't get to know what the seven thunders are. And even speculation can throw us off the course. So we don't know what the seven thunders are. And then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, once again emphasizing this authority. God has the authority. We don't. This angel is showing us God's authority. Raised his right hand. This is typical of an oath. We still do it today. Raise your right hand. We give oaths. We just gave an oath this last week as we were in court adopting our daughter. And what did they have us do right away? Raise our right hand to heaven. So he's raising his right hand to heaven, so he's swearing by something greater than him. So some people think that this angel is Jesus. I think this is one of the greatest arguments against this angel being Jesus, is he is swearing on something greater than him, and swore by. This swearing by is a promise. Him who lives forever and who created heaven and is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. So once again, emphasizing that God is the creator, and by the creator, he is the owner of it all. You think you own something, don't you? Man, I get caught up in that trap. I think I own something. Every year, I think I own my house until I have to pay taxes on it, and I realize, maybe I don't own it as much as I think I do. We think we own everything you have is just on loan from God. And so this changes the way we ask questions about this thing that I love so much. Because it no longer becomes, what do I want to do with this thing that I think is mine? And it turns into, what does God want me to do with this thing that he has loaned me? There are things that we love in our life, and instead of asking how Should I do what I want as I want with this thing? The question becomes, what does God, what is God's assignment for me with this thing? What would God have me do with my house? What would God have me do with my bike? What would God have me do with this talent that he has given me? So it shows ownership. It's emphasizing God's ownership over everything. And then he says, this is what he's swearing, right? So, so we've got, he's going to swear, and we've got what he's swearing by, God who is greater, who is the owner of all, that there would be no more delay. Now this is actually an answer to Daniel 12. So all the way back in Daniel 12, we see Daniel ask the question, how long? How long, O Lord? And finally we get the answer. Notice how long it took God to answer. Daniel was written approximately around 500 B.C. This is written in the 90s. We've got about 600 years till God gives him an answer. Some of you are struggling in the silence with God. 
Some of you are like, why, God? Why? 600 years, and he answers. You're mad because it's taken six months. You can wait on God. You can continue to wait on God. And his answer will be the correct one. So, there would be no more delay. So finally, when, O Lord, and now he's given him, there is no more delay. It's happening now. Now, we still aren't entirely sure of when that's going to happen. He doesn't give us a date. We just know that it's going to happen, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel. So we know it's going to happen when the seventh angel blows his trumpet. That's when it, it's going to start. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about timeline next week because we've got some numbers, but uh, most theologians think that this happened, that this is the seventh angel trumpet is going to usher in the Great Tribulation. So the Tribulation is broken up into two segments. First is the Tribulation, which sounds pretty bad, but then there's the Great Tribulation, which is the last three and a half years. So the Tribulation lasts seven years. The first part is three and a half. The last part is going to be three and a half, and it's going to be the Great Tribulation. So we know that that's when the answer comes. The mis Sorry, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded, by the seventh angel. So that's the answer. We got, we've got kind of an idea of the timeline. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as they announced to his servants, the prophets. All right, so we've got the seventh angel blowing his trumpet that's going to usher in the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, and that's when the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Now, the mystery of God is anything that was previously unknown or that God has kept secret. So we see throughout the, the New Testament, there are several different mysteries of God. One Paul specifically talks about, the mystery being that Jews and Gentiles are now equal. The mystery being the church. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen people. They were thought of as God's chosen people. And they had a specific assignment to share the good news of God with the rest of the world. But after the death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, Christ begins the new thing called the church. This was a mystery. That was just one of the many mysteries. And we see that not all mysteries we will know even. Because, well, the seven thunders are still a mystery, aren't they? But at this end time, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. This mystery in particular is how God will usher in his kingdom on this world how God will transfer a, an earthly kingdom that is based, that your value is based off of what you can produce, that your value is based off of legalism, to God's kingdom, which is based off of his grace. So that's the mystery. How is God going to bring about the earthly kingdom and transform it to become, to conform to his kingdom, the kingdom of God? That is the mystery. It will be fulfilled starting with the seventh trumpet being blown, just as he announced to his servants the prophet, namely and in particular, Daniel and Ezekiel. Those are the, the two prophets that, we, that we're going to focus in on next week, but, they're, but this is kind of summing up all of the prophets leading up to this point. Then the voice. This is uh, the voice of God now, so we're, we're getting a little bit of a change. There was the angel, now we've got the voice of God, that I heard from heaven, spoke to me again. 
saying, go, take. And we're going to see immediate obedience. It's not going to be, wait, God, uh, I've got some clarifying questions for you. Why should I take this scroll? It's go, take, and there will be immediate obedience. The scroll that is open. Now, this scroll that is open, we've already talked about it a little bit. It's part of the big scroll. And the big scroll was held by God, passed on to Jesus. Jesus opens it, begins the escalon, the beginning of the end times, and then passes it on the angel. The angel then will pass it on to John, who will then give us the contents. So that's the way the scroll is getting passed along. In the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. Once again, we see the emphasis on God's authority, that this angel who was representing God's authority is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, and we see that immediate obedience and told him to give me the little scroll. It's not how should I go about taking this scroll. It's not why. Why should I do this, God? You justify to me. So I went the angel and told him to give me the scroll and he said to me take and eat it that sounds weird to us we see this actually throughout the old testament this taking and eating and what it means is to consume the word meaning take this word take this scroll to heart and then live it out for a jew jewish mind i should say a second temple jew but throughout most of antiquity with Judaism, you didn't actually know something and you didn't actually take it to heart until you started to live it. There are a lot of people that profess to be Christians. There are a lot of people that know theology but don't actually live it. And so it's not just hear it, it's not just listen to it, it's not just memorize it. It's live this theology out. Live out this scroll. So eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So he tells him to eat it, he tells him what's going to happen, and then he goes ahead and he eats it. Once again, he doesn't say, but I don't want a bitter stomach. God, you don't understand. I don't like to have bitter stomach. It's, it's a horrible feeling. No, he knows what it's going to do, and yet he is obedient in it anyway. So he obeys, and then what happens? Exactly as the angel told him, right? It's sweet as honey, but in his mouth, or sorry, in his mouth it's sweet as honey, but in his stomach it was made bitter. So we see this bitter and this sweet. It is sweet because it is God's word. And obedience produces life. Obedience produces sweetness in our life. And so that's why Paul, who even when he's in prison, can say, I've learned to be content in all things. That's why those Christians that were, that were being hauled off to be burned in Nero's gardens could still express joy. Because even in your circumstance, no matter how wretched your circumstances are, even in those circumstances, when you're living out God's assignment in your life, there is still a joy, there is still a sweetness that you can have in God's Word. 
but it's also bitter. And it is bitter for a couple different reasons. One is because it reveals judgment. Too often as Christians, we define the enemy poorly. We look at people who might even be harshly persecuting the church, or we look at people who might be giving the church soft persecution, and we think they're the enemy. Your fellow human beings are not the enemy. Those people with an agenda that would love to see the church end are actually not the enemy. And so it is bitter because we see that judgment will come upon them. And we see, even in the sixth trumpet and the fifth trumpet or trumpet blown, that the, the true enemy, the demonic forces, come and they torture the people that we, as the church, have wrongly defined as the enemy. They are not our enemy. They are lost souls that need to hear the gospel. And even if they ramp up persecution to where it is harsh persecution, intense persecution, they're still not the enemy. They are lost people that need to hear the gospel and need to see the love of God reflected in the church. So this is why it's this is one of the reasons why it's bitter because it reveals judgment and it should make us weep. This term bitter is the same term we found with the uh, star that turns the water wormwood, or the star that's called wormwood that turns the water bitter, which is wormwood, and it is synonymous with to weep, to lament. So it, it isn't just bitter in taste. It doesn't just make your stomach feel bitter, but it should make us lament. God's judgment coming on those who haven't professed faith in Christ should make us lament, should make us weep. We should weep for the lost. Not shake our fist in anger. But it's also bitter because it reveals that persecution will continue. And not only will it continue, but it will ramp up. And that is going to be bitter. It's going to be a harsh reality that the people that we have wrongly claimed as enemies are going to ramp it up and persecution is only going to get worse. And yet, our response shouldn't be to shake our fist in anger, but to weep with love for those who are lost. So his stomach was made bitter, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages. And that's the bitter part, is he's going to prophesy against all of these peoples and nations and languages. He uses the term peoples, nations, languages, and kings, to make it an all-encompassing thing. That it's every believer throughout the world will experience God's judgment. There is no, not a single unbeliever who will not experience God's judgment. And he is told that he must prophesy against them. 
Obedience is sweet. Rebellion is bitter. And we as Christians and just people in general, we find all kinds of sneaky ways to rebel. Sneaky ways that are hidden, sometimes even from our own heart. Asking questions that sometimes are really good questions, like Mary's. And yet, we can twist them so quickly to be like, God, you have to justify to me. So we're really good at these sneaky, rebellious ways, and we're also really good, and our temptation is to point our finger at other people and say, I see your rebellion. Boy, you're really rebellious over there. But this chapter should make us point our finger at ourselves and ask the question, how am I living in rebellion against God? Do I trust him when it's all laid out? Do I trust him in the silence? Or am I still trying to usurp his authority and control in my life? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sweet, and obedience to you is sweet. Knowing how this is all going to end, knowing that we have victory in you, we have victory over sin, we have victory over death, we know how it's all going to end, and we know that that is sweet, and we thank you for the sweetness. We also know that there is bitterness as well. That there is lamenting and weeping for those who are lost that that will experience judgment. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to weep for those who are lost. Help us to share the gospel, to love them with an unending love like yours. To show them your love, even as persecution ramps up, we'd know how to turn the other cheek and trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen.